Jordan River is a, uh, is a site of many important, uh, significant scenes and events in the Scripture. And uh, as many of you have taken the challenge in 2012 to devote yourselves to more Scripture reading, uh, several of you have taken on the challenge to try to read through the entire Bible uh, this year. You will come across the landmark of the Jordan River um, many times uh, throughout throughout your reading. Uh, as I said, it's the site of many significant events. Things like the uh, the Israelites crossed the Jordan River when uh, they were heading into the Promised Land, and uh, it's uh, one of those spots that uh, where God miraculously cleared the waters so that they walked through on dry ground. That was the second time that that the Hebrew people did that. They had done that through the Red Sea when fleeing the Egyptians. And significantly, and a reminder of who God is when they went into the Promised Land, they crossed over the Jordan River on dry ground. It's the site of where uh, John the Baptist did most of his preaching and, of course, baptizing, how he got his name. And that uh, is where Jesus was baptized by John uh, in the Jordan River. And as I said earlier, we're looking at a story in the history books uh, as we make our way through that section of Scripture this year. And we're going to look at 2 Kings today, 2 Kings chapter 5. And there's a story that takes place there um, uh, at the Jordan River, or that becomes the central, central place of it. It is a story of um, a man named Naaman. Uh, Naaman, uh, we're told, was the, uh, the commander of the army of the nation of uh, Aram. Uh, that was uh, a, a nation a little bit to the northeast of Israel. Uh, Israel and Aram had had a lot of, uh, a lot of contention and a lot of uh, strife and struggle back and forth. I'm getting a lot of ring up here on, on the stage with my microphone, uh, if you can help me with that. And the, uh, they were back and forth, so it, this, this story becomes kind of unusual uh, in that he was a successful commander of the army of Aram, and he's described as a mighty a valiant warrior, uh, a great commander, a great general, and no doubt some of his victories had been against the nation of Israel. And that becomes significant as the story continues. And uh, they'd invaded Israel, and among their captives, we're told, there was a young girl, a young Israelite girl, who became a maid, a servant, to General Naaman's wife. And uh, this young girl, when when she heard one day about the, the worsening condition of her master, uh, she said to, to uh, Naaman's wife, her mistress, she said, uh, I wish my master would go see the prophet in Samaria, the northern part of Israel. I wish he would go there because the prophet would heal him of his leprosy. I, I like that, that, just that little note in this story that here's this young, humble servant maid. You could call her a slave. I mean, she didn't go to Aram by choice. She was taken there by force and has become a servant to, to the general and his wife. And yet she has faith, believing that God would heal even this general who she's a slave to if he'd only go see the prophet in Israel. So we're told here that Naaman had leprosy. Now, there's some speculation about just what leprosy in the Bible would compare to today. There's a disease that, that is called Hansen's disease. That's a gruesome uh, nervous order disease that affects the skin and the bones and the joints 
that uh, probably is what we usually think of as leprosy. There are other forms of skin diseases that, that might be called leprosy in the Bible. In the Bible, it, it seems that leprosy kind of takes the, takes the domain of all those skin diseases and things that would affect your appearance greatly. And most of them, they believed in the Bible times, were contagious. And so they didn't want that spreading anywhere. But there's also this factor. In, in, uh, uh, in the Bible, uh, leprosy is kind of a, a metaphor also for sin and what it does, how it destroys and how it's contagious. And that's, that's why when you, when you see in the Bible the talk about healing of leprosy, they often use the word to be cleansed, just as we talk about being cleansed from our sin. Now, uh, I, don't want, I don't know if, you're weak, uh, if anybody here has a weak stomach. If, if the person sitting next to you you know has a weak stomach, uh, you might just tell them to look down or look away for a minute. And I'm not going to go near, the, near as far as I could go with pictures. I'm just going to show a couple. But I want you to understand that, that, that Naaman had a serious issue, a serious disease that, was, that would cause great humiliation, ostracization, that would mean he'd be pushed away from family and friends. That was certainly what they did in Israel. So there's an example um, of, that's just somebody's leg. And you can see the, the big sores that begin to form, the discoloration. And then here's a picture of a man whose face is affected by this disease. And I promise you that's mild. Eventually what happens when you have true leprosy or Hansen's disease, it's a nervous disorder. And so lepers begin to, to get to the place where they, because of the nerves become numb, they don't feel pain. And so as, as, uh, if, you're a, if you truly had that disease, you could stick your hand in a flame and you wouldn't feel the pain. And your hand could be burned up and injured. Um, you, could, uh, you would eventually beget, get to a place where the skin would begin to rot and the joints and the bones, so you lose fingers and toes and noses and ears, and that's why you see the, the old pictures of a, of a leper being wrapped in, uh, in cloth and in clothes to, to hide their shame. That was the kind of disease that Naaman, the great general, had. And so we're, we're told in this story that, uh, that Naaman goes... And uh, he agrees to go visit the prophet in Israel. And, and to do that, he sends a letter of introduction to take to the king of Israel. And, uh, and he carries with him uh, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, 10 sets of clothing, and all of this. And this letter to the king of Israel said, With this letter I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. Now, it's an interesting response uh, that the king of Israel had. And in this story, we're not given his name. It could have been uh, Rehoboam or Jeroboam, one of those, uh, one of those Boams that are listed in the, in the history books of the, of the kings here. And uh, I'm getting the big uh, ring again. Are y'all hearing something funny or is it just me? Is everybody okay? Do I need to switch to handheld? We're okay? All right. And uh, the king of Israel has an interesting response to this letter. And when he reads it, uh, he does, and you see this several times in Scripture, it says he tears his clothes. I don't know what it was about this culture, but they were into ripping clothes. Uh, that's what you did if you were really angry or upset. You ripped your clothes. And I guess, you, you know, there's the outer garment, the undergarment, and all that. So we'll just hope he's ripping the outer garment. And the, the king rips it and says, This man, talking about the king of Aram, sends me this man to heal. And, he, and the king says, Am I God? 
that I could do this? That I can give life, take it away? I know what he's doing. The king of Aram, this is a trick. He's trying to pick a fight with me. He's trying to stir something up here. When the truth was, that wasn't that at all. Now, Elisha the prophet. Elisha the prophet, the man of God, the spokesman during this age for God's people and to the kings. He'd been handed that, uh, that mantle, that, that office down from the prophet Elijah. When he heard about this, uh, he was like thinking about the king and said, why are you ripping your clothes? You can maybe use that line next time somebody you know gets really upset and it's really not needed. It's not necessary to get that upset. You just say, why are you tearing your clothes? Why are you, why are you getting so upset? He said, here's, here's the deal. And he just gave this, this real simple instruction. He said, you send Naaman to me, and he'll learn that there's a true prophet in Israel. And he wasn't pumping himself up when he said that. He was meaning this. You send him to me, and Naaman will find out that there is a God, a true God in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses, his chariots, his whole entourage, and he goes to Elisha's house. But when he gets there, Elisha doesn't even come outside. He doesn't even walk outside to speak to him. Uh, instead, he sends a messenger outside to this great general and his whole entourage, the chariots, the horses, the whole works, and he says this. The messenger said, here's what the prophet wants you to do. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River, and then your skin will be restored, and you will be healed of your leprosy. Now, when Naaman hears this, put, put yourself in Naaman's shoes a little bit. At first, I think some of us, if you went to somebody's house to ask them for something, and they wouldn't even come out to talk to you, you might think that was rude. And if you had a sense of self-importance, you definitely might think, well, does he not know who I am? Why doesn't he come out and speak to me? And then when he hears the instructions, Naaman's thinking, the Jordan River. Now, I don't know if you really grasp it by the pictures, but the Jordan River is not that impressive among rivers of the world. Just a view. I mean, it's not like the mighty Mississippi or even the Ohio or one of those rivers that, that you've crossed as you've traveled around the country. It's, it's not impressive like that. It might be kind of like maybe the Canadian River in Oklahoma that I grew up near that occasionally had water in it. Okay? And when it did, it was muddy. The, the Jordan River was, was not that impressive. So he's thinking, man, there's, all, there's rivers back home where I come from that I, if that's what it is, I, why, why, I mean, this is, what's going on? You see, he was expecting something a little different than what he got. The instruction of the prophet didn't seem to match his need, his problem, match who he was, what he thought he deserved, what he was asking for, what he wanted. He was expecting something big, I guess, something grand, something, and he was definitely asking for something fast. Just come out and wave your hand over me and I'll fall on the ground or whatever and then I'll get up and I'll be... Go down to this river, dip myself into it seven times. It's interesting to see the uh, response of the entourage, the officers with Naaman. You can see it in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. It says, Naaman became angry and stalked away. 
And he said, I thought he would certainly come out to meet me. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. And aren't there rivers of Damascus, the Abana, the Farper, aren't there better than any of the rivers of Israel? Why wouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned away and went away in a rage. And the, the example, um, the lesson that, that I think parallels where a lot of us live with this unusual story is this. We often ask for God's help. Anybody here ask for God's help, maybe even as recently as this week? Some of you don't need it, apparently. It's okay. We often ask for God's help, and then we argue with His answer. When He says, okay, I see your situation, here's what you need to do, and we argue with Him. That's what Naaman was doing. But look what his officers said to him. Verse 13. But his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he says simply, Go wash and be cured. They were saying to him, Why don't you just, why don't you just do this simple thing? It, I mean, it's not difficult. Just do what he said to do. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him. And look what it says. And his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child's. Now you think about those pictures that I showed you a moment ago and contrast that with the skin of a beautiful little baby. And he was healed. And he was healed completely. Completely. His skin was completely restored as, as if it was the skin of a young child. The physical healing that he'd asked for, God did that. When he obeyed the instructions of God's prophet. But there's something, there's something more that happens if you keep going in the story. In addition to being healed of his skin disease, as awful as that was, as urgent and neat as that was, there's something greater that happens to Naaman. So, something more amazing happens to him. He seems to become a changed person. His heart seems changed. You can just see the transformation from this proud, stubborn, arrogant, although brave general. He becomes somebody who humbles himself when he sees what God has done for him. And his allegiance, his heart, his worship makes a shift, makes a change. After he was healed, it says, Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. So they went back and they found Elisha. And this time they had an, an audience with Elisha. And he says, Now I know that there is a God in all the world. Except, I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. Elisha said, no, there's no, no gift needed. As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, he says, I don't, I don't need your gifts. And Naaman urged and urged him to take the gift, but Elisha refused. And then there's this interesting thing. Naaman said this. This is verse 17, 2 Kings chapter 5. You can take that, that uh, verse down so we won't be confused. In verse 17, Naaman says, Okay, then please allow me to load two mules with earth from this place. And I'll take it back home with me. 
And from now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other God except the Lord. That's a big change. Big change. Why would he want to take that dirt, that soil home? Why do you think? Because for him, it symbolized that he had come from a place where the true God was. And the true God had done something in his life. He was going back to a nation that, that worshipped all kinds of other gods and bowed down to idols and all of these things. And, and he mentions one that, that he asked for forgiveness for if he has to go in the temple of that place because the king commands him. And he's saying, please forgive me of that if I am forced to, to go in there to perform my duties. And he took that soil back with him. And, and some scholars think he asked for that soil because whenever he, whenever he bowed down in his homeland, he wanted to be bowing. He would lay that soil down and put his knees down in the soil of the place where he was changed and made new. You know, the truth is, if we do what God tells us to do, if we do what he says, we'll often find an even greater result than what we asked for in the first place. Naaman asked for his, his physical body to be healed, for the sores and the, and the discoloring and all of the, the stuff that he was going through that was, was destroying his life physically. He asked for God to heal him of that. God not only did that, he healed him from the inside out. He changed who Naaman was, the kind of person he was. And he wants to do that for every one of us. Most of us, most of us come in this place today, and there is something that we want God to do for us. There is some answer we're looking for from him, something we want him to give us, something we want him to provide us with, some healing we want him to grant us, some, something that, that we're asking him for. It may not be for ourselves. It might be for somebody we love and care about. But we're, most of us are asking God for something. And what I'm telling you is that he can do that, and he can do something beyond that. But so many of us don't get the results from God because we don't want to do what God tells us to do. We come to God and say, God, would you please do this? And God says, okay, here's what I need you to do. And our response is, uh, uh, wait a minute. God, I, just, I asked you to do something. I just want you to do it. I didn't, I didn't come to you to say, God, show me something new I need to, to do for you. I want you to do something for me. And then God reveals to us and makes it clear, either through His written Word or through His Holy Spirit, the wise counsel of a, of a believer. He, he tells us, well, this is what we need to do. He gives the direction. He gives the instruction. And then we come up with excuses, better ideas. Well, that sounds good, God, but what about... Here's what I was thinking. We come up with timetables. Oh, God, I can't, I can't wait that long. We come up with alternative plans. I want to move forward now from, from this, this story in the Old Testament that gives us this example of 
arguing with God's answer and then seeing what the results of obedience to that are. I want us to move forward to and look at this issue with Jesus in, in the New Testament. And the first place I'm, I'm going to look is in uh, Luke chapter 9. If you've got a Bible or got it on your phone or whatever, I want to take a look in Luke chapter 9 in just a moment. And, and these examples that, a couple examples we're going to look at in, in Luke 9 and later Mark 10, the, the, there's a common denominator that Jesus calls all of us. Jesus calls all of us, everyone in this room, not just the disciples in, in, in history and scripture. Jesus calls all of us with this simple, this simple direction. He says, follow me. That's what he's saying to every one of us. Follow me. And there's an example of, of, of this going on in, in Luke chapter 9, near the end of the chapter. And it, it, Luke tells, relates this. He says they were walking along, Jesus' disciples and, and other followers. They were, they were walking along with Jesus, and one of them out loud said, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, well, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man, referring to himself, doesn't even have a place to his head, lay his head. I don't even have a house, he said. He said to another person, Jesus said, come follow me. And the man agreed. He said, yes, I'll do that. But first, Lord, let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I'll follow you. But first, let me say goodbye to my family. Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Zig Ziglar, the, uh, the author, the motivational speaker, uh, positive thinker, kind of Mr. Salesman that a lot of people in the uh, particularly in the last century, heard so much from. He used to tell this story that he said his brother, um, Judge, used to love to tell. And the story was, was this. It's quick. He says, a guy goes next door to his next-door neighbor, and he asks to borrow the guy's lawnmower. And the neighbor looks at him and says, I, I can't do that. I can't let you borrow my lawnmower because all the flights today are canceled from New York to Los Angeles. And the guy's like, well, what, what has that got to do with me borrowing your lawnmower? And the neighbor's response is, well, if I don't want you to borrow my lawnmower, one excuse is as good as another. What does it matter what my excuse is? And we hear that and we think, but, but Pastor, look at what these guys were asking. Is, aren't there excuses or there delays for following Jesus? Aren't they valid? I mean, doesn't Jesus have any compassion? I mean, the, does Jesus not care? I mean, look, this guy's asking, he's saying, I need to go back and, and bury my father. And, and the other one just simply wants to go back and say goodbye to his family. I mean, isn't that okay? Isn't that, I mean, does, doesn't Jesus have compassion? Well, we know he does. If you look at the balance of Scripture, Jesus is the most compassionate person that ever lived. 
Look, read all the stories about the people he healed and he touched. Even when he was trying to get away for some quiet time and people came to him, he would stop and he would heal and he would touch. Yeah, he cares about people. But Jesus knew that these, these folks were just delaying. They were just putting off. They were just coming up with an excuse. It wasn't a le- Basically, he was saying, there is no legitimate excuse for not following me when I call you. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, there's a, there's a, a story there. Sometimes we call the, the character in this story the rich young ruler. We don't know that he was a ruler other than the fact that money often rules. So he had some of that. So maybe uh, my dad always has the line about the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. And uh, that is kind of the way it is in our world and our culture so often. But it's this story that we find in Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. This man comes running up to him, kneels down, and asks, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder You must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone, honor your father and mother. Jesus laid out the commandments that deal with your relationship with other people. Second half of the Ten Commandments. And the man says, Teacher, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. I've I've kept that list. And looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Don't miss that. And he said to him, There's still one thing. You haven't done. Go and sell your possessions and give money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. The man had done a good job at the commandments that deal with how you're supposed to treat other people. He'd kept his list of rules, but he couldn't completely embrace what Jesus was asking him to do. He couldn't put God above all other gods. He couldn't completely let go. Now, maybe he just didn't think it was a good business decision. And, you know, there's a temptation in our lives, uh, with material things especially, for some of us to respond to Jesus when he calls us and asks us to do something, perhaps with generosity or sacrifice, and we say, Lord, that's... That's just not a good business decision. I just, I can't do that. Let me, let me make it real clear. Jesus trumps good business. If on your job, your boss, or somebody's directing you to do something that's unethical, not morally right, violates God's word and the boundaries God set up, but you think, well, I, I, I've got to do it because, I mean, it's business. Jesus trumps good business, if that's what good business means. If you say, I, I just can't give, I, I can't sacrifice, I can't tithe, I can't give, I can't do for others, for the church and for, for, for people like, like I think the Lord wants me to because I, I just can't. I mean, it's not good business. It doesn't make business sense. Jesus trumps Good business. And maybe you read this story and you go, isn't Jesus just overreaching a little bit? 
I mean, isn't Jesus being a little bit harsh? I mean, this guy was very sincere. He recognized Jesus' importance. He called him good teacher. He knelt down in front of him. He's obviously a good person, a good moral guy. And, and he comes to Jesus and he wants to follow. Couldn't Jesus have just said, yeah, come on. I read a quote this week from Donald Barnhouse that says this, Christ sends none away empty, but those who are full of themselves. He sends none away empty, but those who are full of themselves. Now what about this, this request, this, this demand that Jesus made? What did Jesus really ask the man to do? Does Jesus demand the same from everyone? Does Jesus demand the same thing from me as he does from you? Does he demand the same thing from the person sitting next to you that he demands out of you? The answer to that, in my opinion, is yes and no. Yes, in the sense that Jesus' call to all of us, which you've already established here, is follow me. And including in follow me is follow me wherever I go, whenever I go there, what, whatever, to the, to the highest degree, give me your whole heart. Follow me completely. That is the same for everybody in this room. It's not unique to somebody who's a pastor. It's absolutely every person. Jesus' demand of you is to follow him wholeheartedly, completely. Now, if you can read the Scripture diligently and faithfully and come up with anything other than that, I would love to talk to you. I mean, that's, that's what Jesus asked of everybody. But the specifics of that, what that looks like for you and what that looks like for me is not always the same. I mean, when Jesus encountered a blind man on the street and the blind man, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me and heal me, Jesus didn't say, first, go sell all you have and give it to the poor, and then I'll do this. Jesus doesn't demand the same exact specific things of every one of us. The circumstances of your life, your background, your situation, they vary. We vary. For me to be completely obedient to the Lord may mean that I have to do certain things that the Lord won't ask you to do, and vice versa. But the central issue is, will you obey Him fully and completely? And the trouble is, we struggle to do that. Our lack of obedience, we struggle with that. We, we come up with reasons why we can't quite do that. Jesus is asking for a little bit too much. Lord, I can't do that. You know it doesn't make business sense. Lord, you know that might cost me this relationship. Lord, it might cost me this. It, it might cost me that. I can't, you know, not, and maybe later. I can't do it right now. There's, there's too much on me. It's just too much, God. Another thing I want us to recognize this morning is our lack of obedience and the excuses we make and the reasons we come up with and our failure to obey the Lord completely, it affects more than just us. 
It affects all kinds of people around us and even the future generations. Back in 2004, the, the Olympics uh, was going on, the Summer Olympics, and the, uh, a member of the, uh, the Australian women's uh, rowing team, uh, they, they were competing. You know, there's eight people in the boat, and they're competing, and one of the members, a, a lady named Sally Robbins, in the, there's only 400 meters left in this rowing race. And you know what that grueling timing and the grind, and they're all trying to work together. And, and, and she's 23 years old and, a, and an Olympian rower. And with 400 meters left to go, she just drops her oars and slumps over and, uh, and just lets her oar drop in the water. And all of a sudden, because of that lack of, that lack of power, the Australian women's rowing team drops from third place, com competing for a medal, they drop all the way back to last place in the event. And when it was over, Sally was asked about it, and she said, I rode my guts out for the, the first 1,500 meters, and I just didn't have anything left. That's, that's just all I could do for today. As you can imagine, her teammates weren't too sympathetic, and uh, neither was the uh, Australian press. One of the headlines in the newspaper said, It's eight, mate, pull your weight. They, uh, that was a kind of poor Australian accent, wasn't it? Let me see if I can, let me see. It's eight, mate, no. Mate? How do they say it? Anybody got it? Australian accent? Pull your weight. You're affecting more than just me. Her actions hurt the, in, the entire team. And her excuse was, I was just too tired. I just couldn't, I just couldn't do anymore. Let me ask you this question as we wrap this up. I'm going to ask Tom and Lisa to go ahead and come up behind me and prepare for a close here. Let me ask you this question. What's your excuse for not following God's direction in your life? What's your excuse? Now, I don't want you to tell us out loud, but it might not hurt you to make a mental note or even a written note about the things that you've been telling God of why you can't do what he's asked you to do, why you can't follow him completely, why when, he, when you come to him and ask for God's direction and he says, this is what you need to do, why you say, well, I would, but... I remembered this week uh, a book that was really, really popular you know, 10, 15 years ago. Pastor Rick Warren out in Southern California. A lot of people read it, studied it in churches, The Purpose Driven Life. And there was a, there was a paragraph in that, in that book where he talked about the excuses that we make of why we can't serve the Lord. And he, he said this, he said, of biblical characters he was writing. He said, Abraham was old, Jacob was insecure, Leah was unattractive, Joseph was abused, Moses stuttered, Gideon was poor, Samson was codependent, Rahab was immoral, David had an affair and all kinds of family problems, Elijah was suicidal, Jeremiah was depressed, Jonah was reluctant, Naomi was a widow, John the Baptist was eccentric to say the least, Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered, Martha worried a lot. 
The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus was unpopular. Thomas had doubts. Paul had poor health. And Timothy was timid. And he said that's quite a variety of misfits. But God used each of them in his service. And he will use you too if you stop making excuses. Lord, I pray that you'd help us this morning to, uh, to recognize that we do not have better ideas than you do. Our plans are not better. That we would recognize that when you call us to, to follow you, to walk with you, to, to take every step with you, that um, your plans for us are good. And the results that you have in mind for us, if we'll be obedient, are even better than we could imagine. And I just pray that you'd help us to hear that and recognize it today.